Please turn with me in scripture to the book of Revelation, chapter 1. <coughs> Revelation, chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants, things which must shortly take place. And he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ to all things that he saw. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler over the kings of the earth, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood and has made us kings and priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with clouds, and every eye will see him, even they who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, both your brother and companion in the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was on the island that is called Patmos, for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and heard behind me a loud voice, as of a trumpet, saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. And what you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamon, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the feet, and girded about the chest, girded about the chest with a golden band. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace and his voice as the sound of many waters. He had in his right hand seven stars. Out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying to me, Do not be afraid, I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and of death. Write the things which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which will take place after this. The mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches. Last week we spoke of the Apostle John's introduction to the book of Revelation, where John is speaking quite broadly and 
almost in abstraction about what the entire book is about. Of course, it's essential to know what the book is about. And now we come to the direct first-hand account of what he saw in verse 10. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet, saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. And what you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia. So he heard the voice. He heard behind him a voice. He hadn't seen the speaker, this first and the last. And then in verse 12, he says, I turn to see the voice that spoke with me. And you, you see the picture there. Having heard the voice, and physically he turns to see the one who speaks. And the words that follow give the description of what it is that, we saw, that he saw. Now, this physical description is no mere show. On earth, we know that people are not always what they appear to be. There can and often is a mismatch between what is on, on the outside and what is on the inside. They can wear clothes that are the, the uniform, so to speak, of a profession or station in life that isn't really theirs. They can act, they can pretend to be something that they're not. And far worse than that, in the, their countenance and in the way their mannerism, they can pretend to be good when in fact they are evil. But that is not the case with this one that we are speaking about this morning. Every last aspect of his physical appearance is just what John saw on that morning. It's absolutely true and visual in that case. But it is also reflective of what he is and what he has done and what he shall do. And that is the point. These things are not empty images. They are symbolic and typological and true in the deepest way of what he really is. And above all, that description is one like the Son of Man. And that is the subject of this sermon, one like the Son of Man. Now, some of you can't wait to hear something of this one. He is as, to you, to you, he is as some, the greatest and most beloved member of your family. You want to hear stories about him. You want to be in his presence. And you want to look at his portrait. But others don't know him and don't really know what I'm talking about when I say this son of man. Well, you would not be the first if that were the case. All throughout the Gospels, Jesus is speaking about this son of man. And then in John 12, the people get a little impatient. They ask Jesus, who is this son of man that you keep talking about? Who is he? And Jesus said to them, a little while longer this light is with you. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. And who walks in darkness does not know where he's going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. And then this is what, Je this is what happened after that. Then these, these things Jesus spoke and departed and was hidden from them. And so what Jesus said to them, I say to you this morning, while you have the light, receive the light. While you have this picture of Christ, cling on to that with all that you have. So this morning, it is one like the Son of Man in these four points. Who is he? Actually, four questions. Who is he? Second, 
what is he like? Third, what has he done? Fourth, what does he have for us? It's one like the Son of Man. Who is he? What is he like? What has he done? And what does he have for us? So first, who is this one like the Son of Man? In verse 13, we read, In the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the feet and girded about the chest with a golden band. Now, John has already, I know the first thought is, why doesn't he just say who this is? Well, John has already been very clear as to who this is. He has said from the very beginning that this is the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's what it says in verse 1. So it is not as if he's being intentionally unclear. And furthermore, John knew the Old Testament scriptures, and he's expecting his readers to know them as well. And when he says then, one like the Son of Man... He's not being obscure. He's saying, I can do no better than to tell you that what I saw was exactly like what Daniel saw in his vision. I know what Daniel wrote, and I saw exactly the same thing. And I'll read what Daniel saw in Daniel 7, starting in verse 9. I watched till thrones were put in place, and the Ancient of Days was seated. His garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was a fiery flame, its wheels a burning flame. A fiery stream issued and came forth from him. A thousand thousands ministered to him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated and the books were opened. I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed. That's what he is saying. He is saying, that's what I saw. There's nothing obscure about it. I saw the one like the Son of Man, just like Daniel saw. This almighty God this Son of God. Or even in Daniel chapter 10, some of the rest of it. Daniel 10.5, I lifted my eyes and looked, and behold, a certain man clothed in linen, whose waist was girded with the gold of Uphaz. His body was like beryl, his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like torches of fire, his arms and feet like burnished bronze in color, and the sound of his words like the voice of a multitude. Now again, all of these things have their own import. They, they have meaning. They're not empty things. They're, he's not just wearing this gold for decoration. His, his, his hair is not white just for no reason. These things all have their significance. But, firstly and most importantly, it has to do with this vision of the Almighty God which we're given in Daniel. That's who it is that he saw. He saw the Son of God. He is, who is this one like the Son of Man? He is Jesus Christ, the incarnate Son of the living God. Okay, so that's who he is. That's a fairly easy question and a fairly easy answer. The second, though, is what is he like? Now, what do these things mean? What is this description that we have? Well, we read in verse 14 that his head and his hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes like, the flame, like a flame of fire, his feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. 
He had in his right hand seven saws, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. Well, what does that all point to? Well, the word points to the fact that he is holy. That is what all this is pointing to. He is holy. Seen first in his hair and his head being white. His head and his hair were white like wool, as white as snow. Again, that's from the description of the Ancient of Days. The hair of his head was, his garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. And that's like the picture of the Transfiguration, because this is not the first time that the Apostle John has seen Christ in all of his glory. You remember the Transfiguration. When Christ came to earth, he veiled his glory. He took on human flesh, and he laid aside, as it were, his glory. Not his divinity, but the outward show of his divinity. He laid it aside, with one exception, in the Transfiguration. And the three, the inner circle of the apostles got to see that. And John was one of those. And he saw this Son of Man in all of his glory. In Matthew 17, 2. And it says, He was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun. And his clothes became as white as the light. Because that's what he really was all the time, you see. And the, the dreary appearance of his, his clothing reflective of the reality of walking on this dirty earth. All that was, uh, what Christ was revealed as what he truly was in all of his holiness and perfection and sinlessness. That's what it's pointing to. This perfect white of being perfectly holy. And in the account in Mark, it says, After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John and led them up on a high mountain apart by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. His clothes became shining, exceedingly white, like snow, such as no launderer on earth can whiten them. Pure, white, undefiled, perfectly sinless. And particularly, I think, with regard to the head and the hair, it points to the perfect purity and holiness of his thoughts, which is where it all begins. Well, not only is he undefiled and pure in himself and what he is, it is also that his eyes are a flame of fire. That means he is pure about what he looks at. As it says in Habakkuk, you are purer eyes than to behold evil and cannot look at wickedness. Now that doesn't mean that Christ is unaware that there is wickedness. Quite the contrary. It is rather that he cannot look at wickedness with any pleasure. It is that he cannot look at sin and countenance it. That's such a great contrast to us. We look at things that are impure, don't we? We look upon sin and sinners, and we are fine with it. We look upon ourselves, and we see no great problem. That's what the proverb says when it says that all the ways of man are pure in his own eyes. We look down, we look at ourselves, and we think, well, I'm pure. The Lord weighs the spirits. You think of that picture of the fire, the flame of fire in his eyes. You know, you can only receive that light which is, is there. You know that on here we have the sun itself. It gives us light. It reflects off someone and, and we can see them. But turn off, the, close all the windows and turn out the lights. Maybe as a young people we went down to the cave and you cannot see anything at all because there's no light, you see. And that's sort of, sort of kind of a little bit about the way that we as sinners look at ourselves and others. Having no light in ourselves, we're not able to detect that sin. 
But you know that creatures down, way down in the, the ocean, the deep, deepest depths, they have these little bioluminescent things that go along with their eyes. Why? Because they need them. They have to reflect light out in order to get it back, don't they? Well, you see, Jesus Christ, his eyes are like a flame of fire. And when he looks at someone, the brightest, purest light pierces them and returns them all the information that could possibly be about that person. He knows everything. And in the purity of his, his mind and the purity of his eyes, he, he countenances no evil himself, but he sees every aspect of us. Well, he's holy in what he is, he's holy in what he beholds, and also holy in what he does. It says in verse 15, his feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace. Even his feet, even his feet, perfectly pure. You know, even the disciples needed a foot washing. Remember the story in John not so terribly long ago. In John 13, Jesus said to him, He who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. And the idea is that they were essentially clean. They had put their faith in Christ. They were essentially clean. Yet they were still walking as sinners in a sinful place. And just as in the ancient Near East, walking around with sandals, your feet are going to be pretty dirty, after walking around for a couple of miles, so it was that as sinners walking in a sinful place, their feet were dirty and in need of washing. But that is not the case with Jesus Christ. His feet are perfectly pure, perfectly clean. Well, then, it's also holy in what he says, holy in what he is, holy in what he beholds, holy in what he does, and holy in what he says. In verse 15, and his voice is a sound of many waters. Again, that's a reference to the Old Testament, as almost all of Revelation in one way or another is. In Ezekiel 43, And behold, the glory of the God of Israel came from the way of the east. His voice was like the sound of many waters, and the earth shone with his glory. It's a picture of him being God. He is the Son of Man, and he is the Son of God. And his voice is as the sound of many waters. And again, on earth, sometimes we hear people speaking with authority. We hear men that have seemingly a voice of great authority. But when that's a mismatch with what they truly are. But this man has all authority, and his voice reflects it. Sometimes we have men speaking with great confidence, and as if they've truly believed everything that they said. But this man, it is true. His voice is perfect. And beyond that, what is coming from his mouth in particular is a two-edged sword. Out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. And that's a biblical picture, as we probably know, of the word of God. In Ephesians 6.17, the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Or Hebrews 4.12, for the word of the... And I think this is perhaps a better explanation for us to think about what is going on here. For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. That is the word that comes from his mouth. It is sharp. And when we are under the hearing of that word, we are, as it were, laid bare before him. 
and some of our vain imaginations, some of that light that we ourselves don't have any, our eyes aren't a flame of fire, and we sometimes look at ourselves and we imagine ourselves to be pure, but then under the, the power of the Word of God, as it sort of strips some of that away, then we're laid bare. Now, this Word of God is two-edged because it both cuts and it heals, like sort of a surgeon. The cutting is not always to slay, but for those who believe, of course, that cutting is precisely to heal. It is a two-edged sword. That's what is coming from his mouth. So he's holy in what he is and what he beholds and what he does and what he says. And that holiness is manifested in his face. Interesting. And his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. You know, when Jonathan Edwards thinks of heaven, one of the things he, he thinks of is how that our countenances were all perfectly reflect our thoughts and our affections in heaven. He considers it a great fault here on earth that there's a mismatch. Sometimes we try to act in ways that we're not. And what a wonderful thing then when our countenance perfectly reflects that which we are inside. But in this case, his holiness and his beauty are manifested in his face. His countenance like the sun shining in its strength. I was going to say reflected, but of course, again, that's incorrect. Reflected, that's the one time probably in every situation that it doesn't work. There's nothing about Christ that is a reflection. He is the source, you see. If anything, the sun itself is a kind of reflection of the glory of Christ. But he himself is a source. It's coming from his face. All that glory, all that perfection and holiness is from him. And everything else is a reflection. Now, the reaction to all these things, the revelation of who Jesus Christ is, is verse 17. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. Keep in mind... This is Jesus Christ. It's humanly speaking, this is his best friend, right? John the Apostle, not only in the inner circle of the three, but the one who leaned on Jesus' breast, the one who was in in many ways seemed to be his closest friend. Some would say, actually, in, in human terms, a cousin, actually. And he sees this one in all of his glory, and he falls on his face, and that is what everyone who's ever seen the Lord always does because of his perfect holiness what is he like he is holy and when we see him in his holiness we fall down as it were on our faces and if you're unmoved by these words of Christ this picture of Christ then you have not truly seen well that's what he is what he's like. Thirdly, what has he done? Well, we have some hints here about what this one has done because, of course, we're known not only in the way we look, which is, in Christ's case, perfectly reflective of what he is or what we say, but also in what we've done. And it says in the last part of verse 17, he laid his right hand on me, saying, that's a beautiful picture, isn't it? He's fallen on his feet and lays his right hand on him. Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and of death. 
Well, what has he done? Well, it's a summary, actually, of what we need to know about the gospel. Because it's not merely the words Jesus Christ like it's some code word. I think it's actually used that way in some religions. That just merely knowing the right name of Jesus Christ is some magical talisman. It's not that. It's that you know about his life and death and resurrection. And that's what's being pointed to here. I am he who lives and was dead. And behold, I'm alive forevermore. Life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. I am he who lives. That's him. He's the Lord, Yahweh. He was in the beginning with with God and he was God. That's the beginning of the, the Gospel of John. He was in the beginning with God and he was God. And he took on human flesh and he came to this earth. That's the incarnation. And what did he do when he was living his life on earth? Well, he lived a perfect life. He did what you and I could never have done. He lived a perfect life. He really kept the law of God in all of its perfection. No one else ever came close. I'm he who lives. So it's his perfect life and then also his death and was dead. Now this is something that you need to know about the Son of Man. As we're talking about what the Son of Man is like and what he has done. Way back in Matthew 17 it talks about this. I say to you, Elijah has come already, and they did not know him, but did to him whatever they wished. Likewise, the Son of Man is also about to suffer at their hands. This one like the Son of Man, that's what's going to happen to him. He's going to suffer at their hands. And he clarifies a few verses later in Matthew 17:22. Now, while they were staying in Galilee, Jesus said to him, The Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and the third day he will be raised up. And they were exceedingly sorrowful. That's what the Son of Man came to do. He was going to die. Now that death was not pointless. It was not a pointless display. It is possible to do that, but that is not what Christ did. That death was sacrificial. It meant something. It meant that he was going to pay for our sins on that cross. And in Matthew 20, he explains that. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. That's what his death was about. It was not a meaningless death. It was not a show. It was actually to pay for the sins of his people. Because again, God is holy. And no sin is going to ever go unpunished. And that's why when having then died, having been crucified, having died on that cross, at the end of it, as he was giving up his life, you could say, it is finished. Because there was a certain payment due for the sins of his people. And the wrath of God that fell on him, it came to an end because he had taken it all upon himself. And it is finished. So he lived the perfect life. He died this sacrificial death for his people, but death was not the end. It is finished. And you know, because of that, he could not stay in that grave. Because of that, just as he promised, just as he foretold, on the third day he rose again. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Reminds us a little bit of the story of the first time when they heard of the resurrection. And the women had come to see the tomb. But in Matthew 28, the angel answered, there's an angel there. And said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He was crucified. You're right. He was dead. But 
he is not here. For he is risen, as he said. Come, see the place where the Lord lay. Go, go see for yourself. And then after you have seen for yourself, go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. Indeed, he is going before you into Galilee, and there you will see him. Behold, I have told you. And so they went out quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy. And that's what happens when we come into contact with the Jesus Christ, a real one, and what he has done. We have this combination of fear and great joy, don't we? seems like that was exactly what was happening with John, fear and great joy. Because this one who was dead, he is risen, and he is alive forevermore. That's what he's done. He's lived the perfect life. He's died a sacrificial death, and he rose from the dead. The, fi- the fourth and the final question is, what does he have for us, and what does this mean for us? Does he have something for us? He's beautiful. He's perfect. He's done these amazing things, but what does he have for us? Well, at the end of verse 18, it says, And I have the keys of Hades and of death. You see, having won the victory over the grave, the fact that death could not hold him, because you see, death only works when there's sin. If there's no sin at all, there's no death. Those things worked perfectly together. Before, before there was sin in the Garden of Eden, as God had perfectly created Adam and Eve and all their sinlessness, there was no death. No one died. It was only in the entrance of sin that death came. And for one who had no sin, one who even the sin laid upon him of his people, he paid for it all, there's nothing that's going to keep him in that grave. And so he had a victory over Hades and of death. And therefore, when you have the victory over something, you have the keys. That's how you know, by the way, that you have the victory over something, is that you have the keys. You know, you can think of any number of mil- successful military invasions and of the, the symbolic moment when they get to take over the presidential palace or whatnot, and they've got the keys, and they get to decide now who comes and goes into that place because they have won the victory. Well, Jesus Christ won the victory over the grave. He won the victory over hell. And he gets to decide who comes and who goes. No one is going to hell, you see, that he doesn't want there. And those who he does want there, there's no escaping. He has those keys in his hand. And that means, by the way, that is precisely it. You see, he's going to be both judge and savior. That's what this whole book of Revelation is about. Not only who he is, that's certainly so much of it, and what he has done, yes, but also what he's going to do. He's going to come again. And he's going to be a judge and a savior, depending on what you believe about him. Because on the one hand, he's going to be the judge. And there is so much of this imagery that is pointing to that. The perfection of his fiery eyes judging, and his sword, and everything else about judgment. That's part of it. We need to remember that. He's a judge, and he's one who has the keys. When he locks you up, there's no coming out. You see, because not only is he coming to judge once and just lay a judgment on people, of course he's sending them to hell forever. But having the keys of death and of Hades, and when he's speaking to his own beloved disciple John, it also means that he's coming as the Savior. 
Because remember, he was being persecuted. He was in Patmos because of his testimony. He was being persecuted. Someone had thrown him into jail, just like someone had thrown Paul into jail, and Peter into jail, and pretty much the rest of the apostles in various ways, and the other disciples into jail. And he says, I've got the keys. And it may be, John, that you're going to die. And in fact, we know that he did. But don't forget, death can't keep you any more than it could keep me. I've got the keys. You understand the power then of that image of Christ as Savior as the one who has the keys of death and of Hades. Don't forget what Matthew 18.11 says, For the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. What are we reading about? The one like the Son of Man. He's come to save that which is lost. Now in order to do that, he had to die for his sheep, his lost ones. But having done so, if they happen to be captured by death, he's going to let them out. There's no possibility that they're going to be trapped in Hades because he's the one who decides who goes there. What does he have for us? He has the keys of Hades and of death. Now, what do we do to apply these things to ourselves? First of all, we ought to repent and believe. We have been speaking about the identity of one like the Son of Man. And you know, we're not the first ones who have asked that question either. The people ask, who is this Son of Man? And the question is, who do you think he is? I'm not at all saying that you can decide on your own. But sometimes it's good to ask that question, isn't it? Who do you think he is? Who do you think the Son of Man is? Matthew 16, 13. When Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? So they said, Some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, and others Jeremiah, one of the prophets. He said to him, But who do you say that I am? That's the question. Other people can think as they will, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood is not revealed to you, but my Father is in heaven. Who do you think that I am? You see, this is the revelation of Jesus Christ. And when he, John turned to hear the one, to see the one that was talking to him, he saw the Son of Man. He saw him in all of his glory. And we, because of that, we get to see him as well. And if you've seen him this morning, then what are you going to do? I hope you're going to repent of your sin. You see, I don't know about you, but when that word of God is, is laying me bare under that bright light. Somehow I I tend to lose my taste for sin. And I don't know about you, but when I think about the reality that this Son of Man is coming again to judge the living and the dead, I want him on my side. And what is asked of us is that we repent of our sins and we believe on him. Now, that doesn't happen to everyone. We know that the word of God is sown and some receive it and some don't. It's explained to us 
And that wonderful parable of the of the tares and of the wheat in Matthew 13. And they said, explain to us this parable of the tares of the field. They don't know about it. Explain. There's this idea of there's wheat growing and there's also tares. And they both grow together. And you can't really tell the difference, it seems. He answered him, he who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world. The good seeds are the sons of the kingdom. But the tares are the sons of the wicked uh, wicked one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age. And the reapers are the angels. And therefore, as the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all things that offend, and those who practice lawlessness, and will cast them into the furnace of fire. And there will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. And then the righteous will shine forth as a sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears to hear, let them hear. And that's the bottom line. He who has ears to hear, let them hear. While you have the light, walk in the light so you become sons of light. And the gospel of Jesus Christ is those who do repent of their sins and believe in him. And as it were, receive this wonderful gift, this atonement that he's made for us, this sacrificial death, his perfect life as well, all of his perfect life and his perfect death given to us by faith, by grace. We receive that and he will come instead to be our savior. And we will greatly look forward to that day that he comes because he's coming to save his own people. He's coming to take them home. Well, you think about those keys and you think about what a picture that is and what Christ is going to do when he comes. You know, there's uh, vending machines, and uh, they're often for children's entertainment. You, you plunk in the, the coin or whatnot, and maybe there's a crane, and the child is trying to operate them, and, and maybe, there's some, maybe it's to get a, a candy bar. But the, the vending machine doesn't always operate correctly, and something gets stuck. And maybe a little child, you've, you've given them a coin to go get that, and and uh, they come back terribly upset, distraught, because they've put in the coin, but somehow the machine is jammed up, and now it's all lost. Everything's terrible. There's no coin, and there's no candy. It's terrible. Well, you see, I think the picture that we might think about then is that you and I know that there's a man somewhere who has the keys. And you can go ask the attendant, and, and he can... He'll just walk over. It's no problem for him. Open it up. Retrieve the thing and restore everything the way it was. In fact, if he wants to, he can give back the coin as well. See, he's got the keys. And for us, sometimes as we look around, we see those around us, those whom we love. Some have gone home to the Lord. Bodies have died. It can look like that. Everything's jammed up for a moment in time. There's no coin and there's no candy. It's all gone. Everything's terrible. But we must not forget that there is someone who has the keys. And for him, it is as easy as nothing to come and restore everything the way it was and much better even. That is what it means for those who believe, have put their faith in Jesus Christ. That when he comes, this man, this son of man, he'll have the keys with him. So that's our main application, is to repent and believe in Jesus Christ. 
And secondly, and finally, we might think about church membership. You see, those who do believe that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, like Peter did, and like John did, they should be joined to the church. And when Lee comes to join this church in a moment, he's saying, I do believe. I believe that Christ lived that perfect life, and he died on the cross to pay for the sins of his people, and that he rose again, and that he is alive forevermore. He believes these things. And he's saying, I believe that he has the keys of death and of Hades, and that my physical death is no death at all. You, Lord Jesus, have the keys. And that day of judgment will not be fearsome for me. That's what he's saying as an individual, but of course he does not remain an individual. The moment he believed he was a member of the universal eternal church, but also he recognizes that Christ has a church on this earth. This is written to the seven churches. These are actual, real, local congregations written to. And Christ is speaking not to the seven individuals, but to the seven churches. And you see, that is what this is all about. The time from when Christ rose from the dead until the time he comes again, it is all about the gathering of those people. The people from all nations under heaven that no one can number, they're being gathered in. Christ has a church. And those who believe in him ought to be part of that church. As to that, we now turn.